0: Right, welcome to day 153 of Journey Through Scripture. Today we're going to be looking at 2 Samuel chapter 2, verse 8, through chapter 3, verse 21, and then Psalm 69, and we'll finish up with John 21, verses 1 through 25, which will wrap up the book of John for us. Okay, beginning in 2 Samuel chapter 2, verse 8, we see... Abner, the son of Ner, taking Ishbosheth, who is one of Saul's sons, and making him king um, over uh, various important places in Israel that are mentioned here, but essentially over all of the northern kingdom. So, David, here for um, the entirety of today's reading at least, is king in Hebron. He's king in the south, in Judah, whereas Ish- Ishbosheth is reigning in the north. And um, and uh, this the uh, the total length of his reign we're kind of we're told in advance. He reigns for two years. David reigns in Hebron uh, a total of seven years and six months. but that's obviously that this is kind of like um, in retrospect, the the events that are about to transpire, in other words, don't take place after these time periods. Um, they take place as as part of their total reign. Uh, an interesting thing here about the uh, the the man Ishbosheth. If you look at his name, Ishbosheth literally means "man of shame." Okay, uh, Ish is the Hebrew word for man, and Bosheth is the Hebrew word for shame. Probably unlikely that Saul would actually name his kid that. Um, and so, what has probably happened here? If you look at what this guy is called. In First Chronicles eight thirty three and nine thirty, you'll see there that he's called Esh Baal, Okay, Baal, of course, being the name of the Canaanite storm deity, or you know, kind of like also like a generic name for male deities. Um, and so, what's probably happened is that uh, the uh, an editor or writer of First Samuel of Second Samuel here has has altered the name because the name had Baal in it. It is now, uh, instead of writing Baal, he writes shame. Um, the, the other thing, uh, the, we also see this with a few other names, by the way, uh, also um, having to do with the house of Saul is Mephibosheth, who appears in 2 Samuel 4.4. Well, in 1 Chronicles, uh, chapter 8, verse 34, and 940, he is called Merib Baal. So there again, we have Baal replaced with the word shame. We even see this in Second Samuel eleven twenty-one with respect to Gideon's nickname. Remember Gideon back in Judges chapter 6? His nickname was Jerubbaal. let Baal con- contend for himself, right? It's kind of the idea there. Well, in 2 Samuel, Typical with Baal names, um, he, it is changed to Jerubbosheth. This is again the same, the bosheth, meaning shame. And so, uh, yes, somebody, uh, the writer or editor of the book of Samuel has altered this, it apparently has altered these names, um, uh, probably to indicate that it is indeed a shameful thing to name your child after Baal. Um, I should probably note as well, and then I'll get off of this, uh, <laughs> um, that uh, the, the, the word Baal can simply mean like lowercase lord. It's not necessarily like blatantly referring to a, a pagan deity or something like that. Um, and so, it, it, because some have suggested, there's not a lot of hint elsewhere in uh, the books of Samuel that Saul worshiped foreign deities. Like one thing that he does seem to have his head on straight about is worshiping Yahweh. Uh, but then again, you know he's naming his kids with with the name Baal in there and if, and if that is to be taken as a personal personal name, then that would be an indication of um, some kind of um, allegiance to, to other gods alongside of Yahweh. By the way, I apologize for any background noise today. Uh, I've mentioned it before, but um, my autistic daughter is upstairs in her room with a wood floor, which is right above me, and she's playing in there, so I can we can hear it. So that's how things are around here. Okay, so uh, next we see um, Abner the son of Nair, getting all the servants of Ishbosheth and gathering them at Gibeon, which is kind of like further south. Um, so. Uh, I think it's roughly about five miles away from Jerusalem, if I remember correctly. And then Joab, the son of Zariah, gathers the servants of David. And uh, we've already met, uh, the sons of Zariah are important characters in the David story. We've met another one of these brothers, Abishai, already. In, in uh, He's the one who went down to the camp of Saul when they stole the spear and the jug of water back in 1 Samuel 26. But now we're introduced to his brother Joab, who is, again, a very prominent character. And they all meet at Gibeon, and they're on two sides of the pool of Gibeon, uh, the servants of Saul, of the house of Saul, and the servants of David. And Abner says, let the young man arise and compete before us. This um, kind of reminds me of the scenario with Goliath, right? That there's some kind of champion, some kind of contest going on here. Really, not given a lot of detail about it, and except for the fact that uh, apparently this runs itself twelve times, and each of the times there's no clear winner, and uh, it eventually erupts into a a battle in which the men of uh, Israel, that is the north under Abner, that is the house of Saul, are beaten by those who are. Of David that is of the south the Judeans um, and um, and those are of course led by the the sons of Zeroyah with Joab being the most prominent um, and uh, of the three the youngest one whom we've not been introduced to yet his name is Asael now Asael is swift of foot as a wild gazelle and apparently after the battle um, Abner takes off, the commander of the House of Saul's army, takes off, and Asal, Asahel is um, on foot pursuing him, and uh, Abner does what he can to get him to stop running, uh, basically like, hey, there's plenty of young men around who have fallen in battle, why don't you take his spoil, um, why uh, Why should I fight you, how then could I lift up my face to your brother Joab, um, and kind of when he has no other choice, Abner strikes him, it says, in the stomach with the butt of his spear so that the spear comes out of Asahel's back and he dies. Uh, Joab, of course, is not very happy about this being his brother and so he pursues Abner. You eventually uh, have them run down where the two armies are kind of taking their stand atop a hill and Abner is able to defuse the situation. How long will it be before you tell your people to turn from the pursuit of their brothers? Will the sword devour forever? And Joab sees the, the witness w- wisdom in this, although you know, later on, as we kind of learn a little bit more about the character of Joab, he may simply be waiting for a better opportunity to get Abner by himself, given that Abner's just killed his brother. Um, but Joab... Uh, sees the wisdom in this and says, as God lives, if you have not spoken, had not spoken, surely the men would have given up, would not have given up the pursuit of their brothers until the morning. And so he blows the trumpet and they give up their pursuit and there's no more fighting. So Abner uh, goes uh, that night. He travels through the Arabah across the Jordan uh, to Machanaim, which is uh, in the Transjordan and then uh, Joab returns. When the final tally is taken, we see how much the, I suppose we could say, the Lord has been with the house of David in this uh, this internal Israelite war, in that um, there are only 19 fallen of all those who fought on David's side, but of the servants of Saul, there are 360 who have fallen. Um, <clears throat> then in chapter 3, we're told that this war goes on for a long time, and it goes on with David growing stronger, growing stronger and stronger, and the house of Saul becoming weaker and weaker. During this time, apparently, um, David—we're told of more wives whom David is accumulating towards himself. Remember, we are um, part of his characterization is that he is loved. He's a, and and a big part of that is that he's a ladies' man. So he's getting all these wives, and. Um, he has a bunch of sons uh, um, uh, by the various wives. The ones we're told of are Kilav, Avnon, Avshalom, Adonaiya, Shephatia, and Yitra'am. Meanwhile, Abner continues amassing strength for himself among the, the within the house of Saul, uh, and it comes to the point where he gets so strong that Ishbosheth, Ishbaal, whatever you want to call him. Uh, becomes uh, suspicious of him and accuses him of laying with Ritzvah one of Saul's concubines and Abner takes this as a huge insult and uh basically uh, renounces the house of Saul as a result of this and um and and, commits himself to the house of David. He says, God do so to Abner and more also if I do not accomplish for David what Yahweh has sworn to him. So I'm going to, he even wants to be the one through whom God accomplishes exalting the house of David. So um, this man who has been, we've seen, has been nothing but loyal to Saul and now loyal to his descendants, installing his son on the throne uh, is now going to defect to David. And so he sends messengers to him and proposes a covenant with him, um, and he tells him, look, if you make a covenant with me, my hand shall be with you to bring over all Israel to you. And David um, likes this idea, but remembers that his first wife, Michal, is has been given to um, Paltiel, son of, La- son of Laish, by Saul, and he wants her back. And so he says, "You will not see my face unless you first bring me call Saul's daughter um, to me. And so Abner is able um, to do that. Uh, David also sends messengers to Ishbosheth, so it's a little questionable as to like exactly how this worked. Uh, Part of the appeal that David uses is that uh, I have, um, for her, I paid the bridal price uh, price of a hundred foreskins of the Philistines. And remember, it's actually a lot more than that, that he delivered. And so, uh, however it is that this worked, uh, she does end up returning to David. And it says that her husband went with her weeping all the way to Bahurim. No doubt he was upset about this. Um, and you kind of look at this and you're like, well, that's, is that kind of nasty on David's part? Like this man seems just wronged. A couple things to just keep in mind though, is like this, the scenario here, right? David was married to this woman and because Saul wanted to kill David and she helped him escape, she, he gave her in marriage to another man. So that whole marriage, like there's not, it's not like there was a divorce. It's not like David divorced her, right? So it's Um, if anybody suspects, maybe the Deuteronomy 24 um, would apply to David here. And, you know, a man who divorces his wife, she goes marry someone else. He can't remarry her. No, she was never properly divorced. Saul was just like, all right, you know what, David, I'm giving her to some other man. And so she was passed from David to this other guy it's not like this is a happy situation. It's not like that's a just situation. And this man, who is weeping, who is upset, was happy to take the wife of another man. So, uh, you know, we, we, I think we need to look into the entire background scenario here. Obviously, I'm not, I, I don't think we should defend David at all costs in any and everything he does. But, you know, imagine guys listening or women, imagine your husband, your wife, had been taken away from you from a third party for doing, for not doing anything. It's not like you even did anything wrong and given to someone else, um, who wasn't, who was never married to them, right? Like there's no divorce or anything like that. How would you feel about that? And would it be just if, um, if your husband or wife were removed from that household and brought back to you? I think that's the scenario that we have here. So, um, again, I'm not, Bashful usually about pointing out when biblical characters do things that are immoral. I just don't think that this is really one of them. So Abner does come to the um, elders of Israel then, and these so these are the tribes that have been following King Saul, and he encourages them to go and uh, and um, recognize David as king over them, and um, by by mentioning how Yahweh is indeed the one who has selected him, Uh, by the hand of my servant David, I will save my people Israel, the Lord said, from the hand of the Philistines and from the hands of all their enemies. And uh, Abner even um, appeals to Benjamin, the tribe of Benjamin, in order um, along these lines. And so... um, the entire house of all of Israel and the whole house of Benjamin now are behind David. And Abner is the one who's who's kind of made this happen for him, even if there was some sentiment of, of wanting to go for David uh, but before Abner did this. So he comes with 20 men to Hebron. David makes a feast um, for Abner and his men. And, uh, David, and, and and Abner there commits himself to David. Uh, this probably is the covenant he's talking about in verse 12. Do you remember um, how in the establishment of pretty much all the covenants, uh, the exception would be the Davidic covenant in Ch- uh, 2 Samuel 7, which is coming right up, you have fee- um, some kind of food or meal mentioned as part of the covenant-making ceremony, that may may indeed be what this is and that's where we uh, leave off in 2nd Samuel today Abner the son of Ner the commander of Saul's army the one who has in, uh, who attempted to in or who has installed Ishbosheth Ishbaal as the king of Israel Saul's descendant has now gone over to David and is faithful to him Okay, let's take a look now at Psalm 69. This uh, is a psalm of David, and it is a psalm of appeal for God's salvation. So it begins, "Save me, O God." And uh, the first two image, um, two verses there give give us the imagery of drowning. Right, the waters have come up to my neck. Uh, neck, I'm deep in the mire. There's no foothold. Like, right, I, I'm not standing in the water. I'm I'm just treading water here. I've come into deep waters. And the flood is sweeping over me. That's what it feels like. Um, and then verse three uh, talks about how he's been waiting on the Lord and 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 just hasn't been hearing back. I'm weary with crying out. My throat is parched. I'm crying out so much. My throat is parched. My eyes have grown dim uh, with waiting for my God. Uh, and then the reason why he's crying out in verse four, uh, uh, more in number than the hairs of my head are those who hate me without cause. Mighty are those who would destroy me. So he's calling out because of his enemies. And as we've seen, and we'll continue to see, David has plenty of those throughout his life. Um, uh, and, and yet God knows, God God knows, is the one who knows his heart, right? He says, oh God, you know my folly. The wrongs I've done are not hidden from you. So it's like, you know, uh, God knows that I don't deserve this. Like, you know, what is actually in my heart, what wrong I've actually done, and you know what's going on now. So it's an appeal to God for justice based on what God knows. Um, uh, Then I think the next few verses are very interesting, right? Let not those who hope in you be put to shame through me, O Lord Yahweh of hosts, right? That I'm experiencing this thing, I'm crying out to you, I'm not getting an answer. And I don't want to drag other people's faith down with me is essentially what he's saying there, right? Let not those who seek you be brought to dishonor through me, O God of Israel. Like, um, and, and it may even be something more than that, right? That something bad is happening to David and, and, uh, and that those who are faithful to God might suffer because David as the King is suffering, um, um, it is for your sake that I have borne reproach, that dishonor has covered my face. So something David has done to remain faithful to the Lord is part of the what is causing this distress. I've become a stranger to my brothers, an alien to my mother's sons. And then we have the verse that um, actually was cited in the Gospel of John during the driving out of the moneylenders in the temple, for zeal for your house has consumed me and... Um, and then another passage that is uh, quoted by Paul in the book of Romans: the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. Um, and it's a little bit uh, both of, in both cases; those in the New Testament are applied to Christ, right? David's great son, and um, <clears throat> the idea that it is specifically because their his commitment to God and His ways, to God and His Word, to God and His will that he is suffering these things. Um, And uh, verse 12 sticks out to me as well. I am the talk of those who sit in the gate and the drunkards make songs about me. That's how humiliated he feels. Okay, and then in verses 13 through 18, we see kind of like the prayer proper, right? But as for me, my prayer is to you, O Yahweh. At an acceptable time, O God, in the abundance of your steadfast love, answer me in your saving faithfulness. Deliver me from the sinking in the mire, right? We've seen the water imagery. Let me be delivered from my enemies and from deep waters. Let not the flood sweep over me. These are all things that he, metaphors that he's concerned about in the intro, um, or the deep swallow me up, or the pit close its mouth over me. Um, and and uh, then answer me, O Yahweh, for your steadfast love is good. This is what he wants God to do in response to his prayer according to your abundant mercy turn to me hide not your face from your servant for I am in distress to make haste make haste to answer me draw near to my soul redeem me ransom me because of my enemies Um, then back again to this idea that the Lord is the one who knows us intimately and so like he's the one alone who can judge us you know my reproach, my shame, and my honor. My foes also are all known to you. Um, So, you know, God, you're not, you don't, it's not as if you don't have knowledge of the situation, okay? I looked for pity, but there was none, and for comforters, but I found none. They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. Again, something else that is applied to Christ. On the on the cross speaking about the brutality and that even even the um, even the relief that is given in suffering in misery is itself um, is itself pitiful, right? Is itself miserable. Um, and then you have a couple verses of imprecation, which is also quoted in the New Testament this time in Paul uh, regarding uh, unbelieving Israel of his day. Let their own table become a snare, and when they are at peace, let it become a trap. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see, and make their loins tremble continually. Um, and then it goes on uh, in this imprecation, this, this the, you know, David asking for justice against his, his enemies, his, God, asking God to pour out his indignation to make their camp desolate Um, And even let them be blotted out of the book of the living, let them not be enrolled among the righteous. I am afflicted. So now back to David, right? In pain, let your salvation, O God, set me on high. Uh, then in verses 30 through 33, we see the typical response in the sp- psalm, like what I do in response to God's mercy and deliverance. What do I do? I praise him. I tell of his works. So here, I will praise the name of God with a song. I will magnify him with thanksgiving. This will please Yahweh more than an ox or a bull with horns and hoofs. So again, this theme of um, praises and and honoring the Lord and magnifying his name being even greater than praise. Than participating in sacrifice. When the humble see it, they will be glad. You who seek God, let their hearts revive, for Yahweh hears the needy and does not despise his own people who are prisoners. And then finally, this praise that is being offered to God here at the end of the psalm opens up to all creation. Let heaven and earth praise him, the seas and everything that moves in them, for God will save Zion and build up the cities of Judah, The people shall dwell there and possess it. The offspring of his servants shall inherit it. And those who love his name shall dwell in it. Okay, uh, let's go now to John chapter 21, verses 1 through 25. Here, we've already seen some of the resurrection appearances. And now, as happens in the synoptic gospels, the disciples are back up north at Galilee at some undisclosed time in the future. Although, you know, Jesus apparently was with them for 40 days, so it's sometime in that time frame, plenty of time in there for lots of stuff to happen. And it says Jesus revealed himself again to his disciples, this time by the Sea of Tiberias, which, as I think I've noted earlier, is John's way of referring to the uh, Sea of Galilee. So, uh, here it's not all 12, it's Simon, Thomas, Nathaniel. Uh, the sons of Zebedee so James and John and then two other unnamed disciples so unless my fingers are wrong that's seven and Peter's like I'm gonna go fishing and they're like we'll go with you right because what do you do what what are we supposed to do and even when Jesus is with them they still fish so uh, but that night they're out all night they catch nothing and as the morning is breaking upon them so you can imagine, pulling an all-nighter fishing, not catching anything. The sun is coming up and Jesus is there standing on the shore, but they don't know at first that it's him. And he calls to him, children, do you have any fish? And they answer him, no. And he says, well, why don't you try casting the net on the right side of the boat? And still not really knowing that it's him, they cast it. And all of a sudden it's filled with fish. And, uh, and we're reminded here, right? Like, when we ask, like, what's the significance of this? We're reminded of Jesus's words to him, like, I will make you fishers of men. And even the idea that we saw with several of the um, the feeding of the large crowd, feedings of the large crowds, right? It's fish and bread, and it's the disciples who give this to people. And even uh, with the feeding of the 5,000, at least, there's 12 baskets, one for each disciple left over, right? So, Kind of this idea that Jesus being with them, they are able to do what he has called them to do, and that is to go, as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you, okay? So that's, you know, this 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 idea of fishing. From now on, you will be catcher, fishers of men. and um, And when this happens, the disciple whom Jesus loved, the writer of this gospel, whom we understand to be John, who has been named as a guy in the boat— um, says to Peter, "It is the Lord." And and Peter just uh, doesn't wait for anybody else. He he puts on his outer garment um, and he throws himself into the sea and swims to Jesus. Um, the disciple, the other disciples, are dragging the fish and um, uh, in a net, and they get to shore. And then uh, Jesus um, invites them. Uh, to have breakfast, and there they know it is him, and he takes it, gives it to them with the fish, and that's, John tells us, is the third time that Jesus was revealed to them after he was raised from the dead. Now, after they're finished eating, Jesus decides to have a little talk with Peter, and the last thing Peter really, you know, the last encounter they really had was Peter denying Jesus and Jesus being, being tried, which would eventually lead to his death, right? And so you can imagine the shame that Peter must have had. But notice also that in the gospel of John, like both anytime Peter gets any word that something's going on with Jesus since then, he just shoots out like a bullet, right? Like he he runs to the tomb. Um he here he swims from the boat. He doesn't even wait for the boat to get in. He swims. And um and so P, so and Jesus is ready to have a discussion with him. And I think it's interesting that in no gospel does Jesus bring up Peter's betrayal, right? That's said and that's done. So now let's talk about what we need to talk about. And there's two things here that indicate that um, even though Jesus isn't explicitly bringing it up, we're to be talking, we're to be thinking about what's being said here as kind of like the response to Peter's failure. Number one, as you've read today, right, Jesus asks him three times, do you love me? And just like it was three times that Peter denied Jesus, right? And I don't know if you remember, but I made a big deal out of this. I didn't tell you why I was making a big deal, but when that happened, it noted that they were standing by a charcoal fire now here um John you know nobody else it's not mentioned in any other gospels and these are the only two places charcoal fires are mentioned charcoal at all for that matter in the gospels here Jesus has a charcoal fire verse 9 okay and so he says to him do you do you love me more than these and peter's like yeah you know that i love you and his answer is feed my lambs And he asks him again, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he says, tend my sheep. And then he asks him a third time, do you love me? And Peter's like, what's going on? And it says he's grieved. And he says, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus says to him, feed my sheep. Now, sometimes people make a big deal out of like technically in the Greek of this, there are different words for Greek uh, for in in the Greek, there are different words for love, and there are different words for sheep slash lamb that lambs that are used. Uh, it's probably best to take this simply as stylistic differences, rather than that there's some kind of like profound thought that like if you only knew like when Jesus is using agapao and when he's using phileo, then you would see that um, <clears throat> there's a bit of a discussion of this. <clears throat> In a a wonderful book that I'd recommend to a lot of people, uh, D.A. Carson's book, Exegetical Fallacies, it's most likely just stylistic difference. So if that's something that you're kind of like, you know, you've heard a lot about, probably don't don't make that big of a deal of it. Um, But at any rate, this is and and this is a very uh, uh, a very important point, right? Like um, that in the midst of failure. Jesus isn't like, "Alright, kiss my sandals. Let me make you grovel or or like do all this penance or anything like that, right? No. You failed. You love me and let's move forward. And the way you move forward is by feeding my sheep, by doing what I'm calling you to do towards others, right? Like the way to move forward is in ministry by by feeding those who need me. Now, that's not to say that there's no scenarios in which it's right for a person to step back from ministry um, or certain capacities in ministry. The, the point here is that rather than like wallowing in our past failures, we need to um, we need to rest in the forgiveness and the washing and the cleansing that is in Jesus, and then go and do what he calls us to. Like the past is the past, move forward, keep going with Christ. And Jesus tells him, frankly, like, you don't know what the following years and the life that you have to live is going to mean for you. He says to him, I told, uh, truly, I tell you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you're old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. And John notes this he, because John is writing after the death of Peter, right? He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to glorify God. And then he just simply says, follow me. So in other words, he's, Jesus here is, 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 is alluding to Peter, like following me is eventually going to lead to your death. And, but you know what? It's worth it. You're the one who's confessed, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life and I am worth following even if it means that. And Peter tries to turn the the attention then to the disciple whom Jesus loved, who's following them behind, right? And and Jesus is like, and he's like, Lord, what about this man? And Jesus is like, if it's my will that he remains until I come again, what is it to you? You follow me. Don't worry about him, okay? And, and here he takes this opportunity, kind of last minute, right? Because John apparently lived quite long for um, the disciples, possibly the last living one. Um, So the saying spread broad among the brothers that this disciple was not going to (laughs) die. But then he's like, remember, Jesus didn't say that that I'm not going to die, only if it's his will that I remain until I come. What is that to you? And then he goes and identifies himself. He says, this is the disciple. And remember how important the theme of bearing witness is in the Gospel of John. This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. Um, and then he finishes by saying, what we kind of know already, right? Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did. where every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. All right. That's it for today. That's it for the Gospel of John. Tomorrow will be in Acts. So, until then, I very much look forward to being with you. Keep reading Scripture. Bye-bye.